0: The emergence of COVID-19 has forced the legal industry to rapidly undergo a fundamental transformation. I'm Jack Newton, CEO and co-founder of Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal software provider. In each episode of Daily Matters, we'll explore what this new normal means for law firms, how legal professionals can find success while working remotely, and how lawyers can best serve their clients during this unprecedented situation. On today's show, we have Matt Holman, former lawyer and founder of Filament, a meeting space and facilitator in St. Louis, and now virtually. Matt, it's great to be talking to you.
1: Thanks, Jack. It's good to see you, too.
0: So, Matt, first and foremost, how are you and your family doing? Uh, How are things in St. Louis right now?
1: We're okay. We've been uh, isolated ourselves for uh, probably the last three and a half weeks. Uh, Everyone, knock on wood, is healthy. Uh, But it's also been interesting. We have a lot of friends in the healthcare business. So we see what they're going through every day. So we just got ourselves lucky that we are fortunate enough to be able to stock up and we need to, and uh, that the bug has missed us so far.
0: Good. I'm, I'm, I'm really glad to hear that. And tell me what's, what's on your mind most right now, Matt, what are you thinking about what's keeping you uh, up at night?
1: Well, quite frankly, thinking about innovation. I mean, we get to work with our customers a lot on that. We think about ways to experiment and try new things, but really for the first time since we've opened We've had to innovate at scale almost immediately. Uh, We've built this business over the last almost five years. Uh, We've always looked at everything that we've done here, getting a little bit better every day, a little bit better every day. Uh, But when you run an in-person meeting business and no one meets in person anymore, you either have to find a way to pivot and deliver your services in a different way or you don't deliver your services. And so for us, that was really being a small business. Uh, kind of the, the losing sleep and figuring things out. We know that we know how to do meetings, uh, but to try and build a model where we can now do them virtually with the same fidelity and with the same impact has uh, taken some time, and I'll give our team, hopefully when they watch this, we'll realize how thankful and grateful I am to them for having stepped up to the plate and building what we've built in such a short period of time.
0: And, and tell me a little bit more about your business. Tell, tell me about Filament and, and and maybe give our listeners uh, a bit of a perspective of the Matt Holman story. I, I've known you for, I, I think, you know, probably 12 years now. We met at uh, my very first ABA tech show. Uh, you did something really cool. These Ignite talks that were these Pachacucha style. Uh, was it six minutes uh, you, you had to, to give a bit of a pitch? And you've you've had a, an interesting journey since that point as well. So give us the the, the Matt Holman bio in, uh, in, in five minutes or less.
1: Yeah, they, 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 we called them LexThink.1s. LexThink was my legal innovation company uh, when I was trying to sell innovation to lawyers, which is kind of like, uh, well, I would say it's kind of like is selling something to someone who doesn't think they need it and isn't willing to pay for it. So uh, about a decade ago- um, uh, that, that, that idea was of,
0: just a decade too early, Matt, that, that I, I think that is exactly it, what is needed
1: today. You can't, make, you can't make any money being early, right? So, That's right. Uh, I was a practicing lawyer in a small town in Southern Illinois, which is where I grew up. Had a solo practice uh, and started blogging. I, was, I don't know if I was one of the first 100, uh, but I'm pretty certain I was. and Maybe one of the first 50 bloggers. Uh, and I was writing a blog called The Non-Billable Hour. Yep. I was writing about innovation, creativity, client service, pricing, all of these things that were really a place for me to capture the things that I found interesting and was implementing in my practice. And back then it was really- so, And this was the
0: early 2000s, Matt, roughly? Yeah, yeah this yeah. is
1: probably uh, 99, uh, 98, 99, right in there. And so because there were very few people writing about this stuff at the time, uh, it was easy to build an audience quickly. And so got to be kind of wrapped in this community of legal innovators, people who were interested in thinking differently about the, the practice of law. And that pulled me out, the, the probably the seminal moment of all of this. It was a text show. Uh, a bunch of us were sitting around the bar. It was 3 in the morning. Uh, the bar had been closed for almost two hours. <laughs> and we were having this amazing conversation about the future of law practice. And it was something that was never going to be on the agenda, right? Or at least not for several years, right? There was no critical mass. There wasn't lowest common denominator commonality. It was just the weirdest things. We probably were talking about social media before it was called social media right? Thinking about technology. And so what we did is driving home with Dennis Kennedy, who lived in St. Louis at the time, Mm -hmm. we had a conversation in the car and said, wow, wouldn't it be great if we could do this for an entire day? Because we were really tired that next day. And so we started a thing the next year called LexThink. And what LexThink was, was essentially the day after tech show. uh, It was an opportunity for people to hang out for an extra day. Most of us were speakers, right? So we already had our travel taken care of. And we thought, wow, if we could just have a day, of people talking about the future of law practice, we thought we'd have the same five or 10 people who showed up around the bar that night. We made an invitation only because we didn't want to fail too publicly. And we did this full day innovation event, no PowerPoint, uh, using open space as a facilitation methodology. We probably had 25 people come, lots of people who we would would have never had the courage to invite, Mm -hmm. uh, who raised their hand and said, I'd like to come to this. And from that moment on, my life changed. People started to ask if, you, if I could do that same kind of thing for their law firm. We did one the following year called Blog Think. So I know it was the first social media in legal conference and probably one of the first five or ten blogging conferences, period. Uh, and started to realize that this was really, really cool. It was a place for me to take my experience as a trial lawyer, uh, as a mediator, and play with things in a different way and quite frankly, get amazing amounts of credit for all the really smart people who were doing really cool things in a conversation that was just really something that I'd convened and brought them there. And so from that moment on, I started to think about what is, how do you get people to think together better? Uh, I remember one of our early uh, client-facing conference engagements was your first ClioCon. Yep, uh, Yeah. the Hotel Max in Chicago. We came up, brought yep. some, of, some of our artists with us. And so in the time since then, Uh, I've run a couple businesses, but I've managed to kind of cobble together a bunch of really interesting ways to do this work. I have an artist, uh, multiple artists who can draw live in sessions. Uh, We don't use PowerPoint in anything that we do. We use exercises and tools and worksheets to get people to engage around content and ideas. But I got tired of trying to go on the road and doing cool events and meetings uh, in terrible spaces. Uh, It was really hard to go into a hotel ballroom and realize only once you were there that you couldn't put stuff on the walls or that the tables were too big to talk across, that you were all set classroom style. And so that's where Filament came to is it became a really interesting place when I thought, wow, I could build a space where people come to us for us to facilitate meetings. uh, And then we could design the meetings to fit the space that we have. And so what Filament does, or at least has been doing until the last month or so, is that we build really great meetings, conferences, retreats, offsites. Uh, only about 10% of our work is inside legal. Nearly all of it is a mix of Fortune 500 companies uh, and nonprofits and community organizations and schools here in St. Louis. Uh, we do strategy, culture, a little bit of process design, and lots of innovation. But the truth is, all of our work, even from that very first conversation, was about helping smart people engage with one another in different ways. And so that's kind of where we've landed is we've built this meeting business uh, where when people come to us, we don't let them rent our space. We design, facilitate everything. And that has given us some really interesting insights into not only human behavior and power dynamics, uh, but also that everyone has the exact same challenges. They're all broken in the same way. And they all think they're broken in completely unique, different ways. And they all overestimate how broken they are compared to everyone else. And the gift we have here is we get to listen to all these people from different industries who never cross pollinate, solve versions of the same problem over and over again. And so we get to be smart for them because of them, if that makes any sense.
0: Yeah, well, I I think about you as a, a McKinsey or a Bain of meetings almost. You get to see cross sectional across all sorts of industries how are meetings and collaboration done well, and then extract best practices, if you will, and, and apply them to, to new industries and, and folks that may have never, ever seen anything like that before.
1: I love that framing. Uh, I, w- one thing that we found, Jack, is that clients hire us the first time because they have a meeting, right? And everyone has meetings. And nearly all of those meetings are terrible, right? So when we're talking to customers, we don't have to convince them that their meetings are bad, right? Everyone knows that their meetings are bad. Uh, and it's one of those few behaviors that we engage with over and over again in a single day, but never think to practice. And so getting people here, what we have to convince them of initially is that they shouldn't be hiring a Bain, an Accenture, a PwC, etc. to tell them what to do, because those big consultancies just deploy a bunch of 23-year-olds with PowerPoint slides to reuse the playbook year after year after year after year from all these other companies. Right. We want their smartest people to do the thinking, to engage, to be creative and collaborative and find that not only do they get really amazing insights from you know, inside the four walls of their organization, but the occasionally time we can drop and say, and here's something another customer has done in a similar situation. They get real value from that, but they don't look at us as that consultant. right? They don't look at us as the person telling them exactly what to do Uh, We're just sharing stories that we've, you know, been given permission to share from our other customers.
0: So, Matt, I I know this is probably a a painful topic to talk about in the COVID-19 era where the idea of physical gatherings are verboten, essentially. But when you created this space for for meetings, this is really, I think, swimming upstream compared to how most companies do their meetings, which would be we're going to do it on site or like you said, we're going to go rent out a, an overpriced and, and suboptimal conference center or hotel venue, and you would fly to them and help facilitate this meeting. Right. And instead, you're, you're saying, no, no, you, you come to me, um, and uh, I'll, I'll leave it to you to name names if you want to, but I know you've had Fortune 500 clients, uh, law firms, others uh, attend your sessions at, at Filament. Uh, you know, tell me about how important that space is and... Uh, you know, one of the uh, phrases that my uh, chief operating officer George Saharis, introduced me to, when when we're talking about the idea of uh, our offsites and how powerful it is to actually go somewhere new to change your your space. There's this concept uh, of construal level theory about how changing your physical space can change the way you think. And it, it, it sounds like that's kind of what you're bottling up a little bit in terms of the, the filament experience. So would love for you just to talk about the importance of, of space. And, and maybe from there, we can segue into what that looks like in, in a, a COVID-19 era.
1: You know, the, the space has given us a couple things. One is that uh, it gives us permission to do new things. So the space is as much a, a chief innovation officer for us as anything else. Because when people come to us, we have more permission to try things than we ever do when we won't go on site. And right. we go on site for maybe one out of every seven engagements. So we're still, yeah, you know, we were down with HP in Houston a couple of weeks ago before this whole thing hit. We were travelers out in Hartford, Connecticut a couple of weeks before that. So we get to go to companies every once in a while. But when they're bringing people together, or frankly, when they're headquartered here in St. Louis, like a Purina, an Emerson, a Wells Fargo advisors, et cetera, they already need to have a space anyway. So the space gives us permission to try new things faster and more readily because we're the host. You're coming to us. Mm-hmm. The other thing the space has done for us that I was unexpe- not expecting uh, is it gave us the opportunity to do more social good faster
0: mm-hmm.
1: because we, give, we do lots of nonprofit board retreats. We're working with the public schools here in St. Louis, and that's a big, we have big challenges in that area, social justice, uh, racial equity. Some of the things that we get to do that's purpose-driven homelessness. Because we have the space, we're not asking someone to bring us in on top of renting a hotel ballroom or working in their suboptimal space at their, at their local, you know, in their local offices. Third thing has become for us as a great sales, a great salesperson. We don't have to answer the question who exactly like us. If you've done this exact same thing for before, right? That question never gets asked because when people are here like, Oh, you're intentional. You're clearly uh, have done work before right? You're right. not a consultant with a mailboxes, etc., office address, right. and a 800 number uh, You know, from Google dial, right? Or Google Google phone. And so we're, all of that being said, the space has given us an opportunity to learn faster and push harder than we would have before across more industries. What it does for our clients, though, is that when they walk down this hallway as you come into our space, because we've got, you guys can't quite see, we've got, I've got 20 feet of air above me right I've got skylights in this room uh brick walls we've got cool look at lego and toys and games it looks like my parents garage sale threw up all over the place uh (laughs) thank god that my mom never gave anything away and here they get a permission to be more expansive in their thinking right because number one we get to push them we get to manage the power and balance uh I know this isn't you jack but when the ceo is in the room that impacts not only what people share uh But it impacts all the relationships in the room, especially if they're up front trying to run that engagement. For us to be able to tell the CEO, we take them aside generally first and say, there's some times I'm going to tell you to shut up, roll with it, uh, because that will have impact on your people. We move people into small groups. So maybe one group is stuck with the CEO, but they're not stuck with them all day long. Uh, That permission to build the space our way, small tables, we make it really hard to plug in a laptop. Uh, we have really good Wi-Fi, but we don't make it super easy to join.
0: Right. right? Um, Long complex password.
1: Exactly. All of those things (laughs) kind of push people into a different way of thinking and then we're drawing live, right? So we've got a 20 foot whiteboard in the front of our space. That's about 15 feet tall that gets filled at the end of a day. And so we get people to, when they're offsite here to all, from the moment they begin to realize the experience is different. But now when we can't bring them here, one of our challenges and what we've really been trying to lean into is how do we replicate that customer experience, not necessarily in the one-to-one, converting in-person to online in the exact same way, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, but how do we still make sure that their onboarding experience, that when they do click that link on Zoom, that they felt like they've engaged already, that they're using tools that feel unique and different to them, and that it doesn't all of a sudden feel like they're just at their office, sitting around their boardroom table if they were in person.:
0: And tell, tell, me, tell me, Matt, how, how do what kind of problems do you see, uh, maybe focusing on your law firm clients come to you to, to solve? If they, 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 they come to you you know, once upon a time for a physical meeting, and now maybe for a, for a virtual meeting that you facilitate using your new tools. What are examples of some of the uh, topics that you're asked to help them navigate?
1: So it's, such a, it's a, such a funny question because that answer to what problem does a law firm ask us to solve, they never have a problem in mind. Uh, other companies need to focus on a strategy, need to build a new offering, need to reimagine a process. Other companies tend to come to us with much more clear goals and outcomes. Law firms still until we get involved with a law firm are just replacing a meeting. So right. it's their partner retreat. It's the, the, uh, associate Academy. It's a learning opportunity. So because the challenge is two things. One is that lawyers don't think they have the challenges they do. And I'm talking at the big firm level, right? Uh, or they're unwilling to articulate those challenges among their peers. And the second thing is that the, there is no one inside a firm empowered to solve those challenges? So think about the the, the the space we're in now. How many law firms have chief collaboration officers? None. How many have chief innovation officers that get to be empowered to do more than just release press releases? Not very many. I'm going to piss off a lot of people here, but that <laughs> that challenge of even market. I mean, the average the average tenure of a marketing professional. Someone told me is like the the tenure of an NFL linebacker, right? You don't get to do these very long because you're working for a room full of experts, right? Right? Uh, lawyers and litigators in particular are really good at being really smart about things really fast, right? That's, the, that's their stock and trade, getting ready for a case, being ready to argue, understanding the nuance of a product if the product is at play inside a lawsuit, right? Thinking about, I still think about how much I know about hepatitis with a, with a case that I had as a second year lawyer that I can't even name the company. And so where we come into law firms and where our skill set really is appropriate is that fundamentally we're asking them to share what they've done that works for them. One of my favorite examples of this, and I share this all the time, but because people tend to underestimate the novelty of their ideas, they don't share the things that are working for them. So I was facilitating a large law firm retreat, maybe 1,000 lawyers in a room. We were down in Orlando. This was about a decade ago, maybe eight, nine years ago. And it was, an entire, it was me in the entire day. So facilitated, everyone's at the gigantic round ballroom tables. And the first thing that I asked them, they were sitting at the beginning with all the people that they knew. That's where they came and sat down and chose, even though we moved them around over the course of the day. And the first question, there was three parts to it, because we were talking about business development. I said, question number one is, what are you doing to grow your business that works, that everybody knows about? Question number two, what are you doing to grow your business that's your best kept secret? And question number three, what are you afraid to try? And I was convinced that that second and the third question were going to be gold. be fascinating, interesting. So I'm wandering around this gigantic room. So I'm like, oh my God, this is the first thing we're doing. And we're we're already going to be behind time. And I finally get to the front of the room. There's the managing partner. And kind of his peers, right, the oldest, richest, whitest men in the room are all right here in this very front and center spot. And he waves me over and he says, man, you've got to hear this. And so he points me out to this guy who runs their Atlanta office who looks like Wilford Brimley and sounds like Foghorn Leghorn, like he is that southern <laughs> yeah. gentleman of a lawyer. And he says, I just told them, you don't know your clients unless you know the name of their dog. And I laugh, I thought that's interesting. And he, he starts to elaborate a story he had just told his peers at the table. He represents publicly traded companies. He can't give them gifts anymore. Right? If he's working with the CEO or the chief legal officer or the general counsel, it's a bigger pain for him to say, here's a bottle of Pappy Van Winkles. Now go fill out the report form and, you know, right. and, and fill it out versus just go buy yourself something that's awesome. Yeah. But he says there's not a damn thing that says I can't give their dog something. And so he elaborates, he and his wife have raised dogs for years, they have treats made for them by someone, a local bakery. And so whenever he goes to visit a client, he takes a brown paper lunch sack. He has a bin next to his desk. I imagine like a trash can looking thing with a lid. He pulls a scoop in. He fills up the bag with dog treats and he writes that person's name, the, the name of their dog on it. He does the same thing for their gatekeeper, right? Their admin, their chief of staff, etc. Whenever he sees these CEOs and, and general counsels out, they talk about dogs with their spouses. That is the single best business development tip I've ever heard. Simple, cheap, fun, memorable, personal connection. That was his answer, Jack, to the question, what are you doing that works for you that everybody knows about? He's sitting at the table with the people who've known him longest and best, and none of them have ever heard it. Wow. And so when we work with lawyers, part of our challenge is to get them to share the things that they think everyone knows Add a, little bit of competitive, com- add a little bit of competition into the mix. Uh, and then I'm not giving them any information. I'm not having to be an expert for them at all. I'm just helping them surface all of these amazing ideas and insights that they have uh, with their peers. And so that's a natural implication for them. And then at the end, then I think, here's how we think about experimentation. Here's how we might take those experiments and pilot them. Here's simple approachable language around how we might market our services or deliver better uh better customer engagement or price differently but for lawyers in particular it comes from them because no lawyer or law firm is gonna say hey Matt come in and teach 50 to 500 to a thousand of my lawyers how to price right because every single one of them is gonna say I already know how to price. My clients are totally different than yours. Everything I do is completely unique and there's nothing that's similar to anybody else in any industry or service. So, uh, go take a leap.
0: It, it's interesting too, when you talked about the, the idea that law firms aren't coming to you with, with problems or aren't coming to you with specific mandates in terms of the strategy development they want to do. There's so much, if you think about the ceremonies that law firms go through, like their law firm retreats, for example, it's, it's, it, it's an event and it's a place, but it's not necessarily an objective that you're, you're trying to achieve or a problem you're trying to solve or, a Strategy you're you're trying to de- develop, um, thinking about how how this translates to uh, the the industry and the challenges it's facing right now, Matt. You know you're you're connected to many law firms. You've worked with law firms for for years as an attorney, and your your knowledge of the industry. How do you expect things to shift in the legal industry as a result of this, of this pandemic. And what, what is your, what is your feeling around what you think the major struggles, the, the average law firm might be facing and how you would suggest navigating those and getting, getting innovative about how to address those, those challenges.
1: Right, uh, boy, that, that, there's a lot to unpack. Uh, what do I think law firms should be working on versus what do lo- law firms think they should be working on are two different things. That, that's a um, great
0: way of answer both those questions. I think they'd both right. be uh, instructive.
1: My, so I, I think that one of the significant challenges is that law firms struggle, uh, and I'm talking firms of 20 lawyers or more, right? When the compensation scheme is fundamentally the thing that drives all the behavior in a law firm, right? Uh, they struggle to get past their business model in ways that will change short term the dollars that end up in their pockets. Right. Because every lawyer thinks in a big firm, uh, in particular, that if I don't like next year, by the end of that year, I could be working somewhere else. And all my clients will follow me, whether that's true or not. And more of the research is showing that it's not as true as it maybe once was. And so there seems to be this really significant challenge for law firms to take big leaps in business model design or in the way that they serve their clients because there's a fear that this, the cats that you've already herded into being okay with this small incremental change will jump off the ship to mix a really bad metaphor. Uh, But I do think that there's some really interesting opportunities, so one other challenge is that I would not be challenged using this time to think about law firms innovating. I think they absolutely will innovate but that language coming from a co- customer we talked to just yesterday is that innovation feels like, uh, you know, uh, green pastoral meadows and lots of money and time right. and sunshine, rainbows and unicorns. That's when we'll innovate. But I think you can do some really interesting things now if you frame it differently. So to go back to the questions, what should law firms be doing and what will they do? They, and the answer to both of those is they need to apply their creative problem solving skills and talents to focus on the challenges in front of them. What they should be doing is partnering with their clients and looking to see where that Venn diagram of challenges that law firms are facing and clients are facing overlap and spend as much time as possible in that intermediate overlap area. What they'll likely do, and I hate to say this is true, is they'll likely spend their time innovating on how they continue to deliver on their old business model. We've all heard stories about how lawyers tend to be reluctant to ask their clients how they're doing, all right? Especially mm-hmm. big firms. I've heard stories of big firms, lawyers pushing back on client surveys because they think everything's fine and they don't want to give their clients a chance to reconsider that opinion.
0: Oh, it's, it, it's just on that point, Matt. So interesting to me when I've been giving uh, talks at, at CLE seminars and other, other forums. And I asked the audience to put up their hand, how many know what NPS stands for, how many conduct net promoter scores, surveys, you know, that it's, it's one or two hands per hundred people typically. And then when I explain this concept that you will ask your client at the end of an engagement, how they felt you did and how likely they would be to recommend you to a friend or colleague. uh, The the concept just seems anathema to to most lawyers. Um, And it's, it's such a powerful tool if you can get over that hurdle of, is it, is it okay? Almost the vulnerability that it, it surfaces to ask your client what they thought of the legal
1: services you delivered and how you delivered them. And, and what has changed so much, certainly in the last decade is that clients no longer are judging compared to their other lawyers, right? They're judging compared to the service experience they get at Starbucks and their dry cleaners and their dentists, right? If, This is something I blogged about maybe 15 years ago. But if your dentist has an evening office hours one night a week, drive past them and see how full they are and how hard it is to get that appointment. Yeah. Their customers are your customers, right? How come you're not taking those lessons and applying them elsewhere? And I think there's a real challenge probably because so few lawyers, and I hate to overgeneralize, but they really struggle to think about how to innovate. Uh, they, they struggle to think about trying new things because they're so busy in the middle of it, right? Yeah. Uh, and that framework, it's one of the things I really like about your book, Jack, as you think about that kind of customer or that client journey, is that you just take a little slice of it, right? So if I say, and I always think the example I always give is the airline uh, example, is that you fly to get somewhere, but at each stage of that experience, there's something you care about. Right? When you're waiting in line to check your bag, you want the line to move faster. Right? Well, that's where you start. Right? How fast is it now? How fast might we make it? And what experiments can we try that might turn into pilots, what pilots might turn into projects to make that line move faster? But no one, when you ask them generally writ large, why do you fly? Why do you go to Southwest, as an example here? Uh, oh, because the lines move faster. But in that moment, it feels important. And then you move to the next stage, and the next stage, and the next stage, you rinse and repeat. And being able to innovate in that way, and frankly, share this innovation journey with your customers, right? I think from a client standpoint, one of the things I always like about CleoCon is that you guys give a bit of a picture of what your roadmap is, right? How come lawyers aren't sharing their next 10 improvements over the next 12 months? Each month, we're gonna be focusing on this stage of the customer journey. We're gonna be surveying you specifically, we're gonna be asking a handful of you to come in and help us think about it creatively, and we're gonna share what we've learned, warts and all. That sort of model for innovation, uh, A, B, testing, doing all these things that people in real business who have metrics for nearly everything these data-driven companies do all the time, it's just not something that lawyers are familiar with, and one of the first things that lawyers do, and this is true of every profession, is at the moment something feels completely new and different, you, it's easier to be a safe follower than an early adopter. Yeah. Uh, but then you're flipped with this idea that most of your peers in your organization are or in your bar association, I should say, really struggle to share what they're doing. So you don't even have, you have an incomplete picture of what your peers are engaged in.
0: So and, it's, and it's really hard. Almost a regression to the mean. If you take that approach as well, right? If, if you're, setting the bar by what your peers are doing. And I, I think that's what I, I think of as the enormous opportunity that we're on the cusp of with, with this crisis is a few things. Number one, I think permission to experiment when you're, when you're talking about innovating and you're innovating in order to adapt to this completely new world. I think everyone, including your clients, give you complete permission to experiment and even to fail if it, doesn't, if it doesn't work out. And I think that's a, a, an enormous opportunity for businesses of all stripes to, to leverage in this climate, but especially law firms that are, are normally, I think, as, as you've pointed out, just fearful of what innovation and experimentation could look like because that does necessarily require willingness to fail. And, right. it,
1: and, and that's and, what and, so and- many
0: law firms get hung up on.
1: One of the things that, that I, I love, one of the CEOs that we had here, she's had this magical way of framing failure. She said, we're not going to use the word failure anymore. We're going to use the term tuition. And she says, I'm willing to pay tuition for us to learn a lesson,
0: That's but a great I'm unwilling framing. to pay to
1: take the same class twice. Right. And so that lesson she shared was such a phenomenal one because you saw these senior level people look around and realize that they could try things, but they better share what they're trying and how it went. Yeah, Because if I come to someone and say, wow, we failed, right? Great. But your peer down the hall from you made that exact same mistake six months ago. How come you didn't learn about that? Now you're both in trouble. Right. But tuition is such a wonderful metaphor for thinking creatively about that. And going back to one other thing you said, Jack, when you talk about failure uh, and permission to fail, we both, we're not only in this world where we get more permission to try things because everybody is trying things because everything's changed for everybody all at once, right? But we also have permission to be human in ways that we've not been given that permission before. Right. Right. I don't get to bring someone up to the 50th floor of a skyscraper in our building, our tallest building downtown with our marble uh, lobby and art from artists you would know on the wall, to impress them and frankly, to convince them why I'm worth $1,000 an hour. Right. Right. I now am sitting in my desk with my cat tail going in front of the camera (laughs) every once in a while. Yeah. And hearing my daughter scream in the background and the dog bark when the postman came, when the post uh, carrier comes, that now I'm as human as my clients. And so on the one hand, we have a chance to connect with them more deeply. But, on the other hand, now, because all the varnish has been rubbed away, we now have to have a really interesting conversation about value with them that we might have been unwilling to uh, unwilling to engage with before.
0: yeah, I, th- I think it's a, a great point. You've kind of taken all the the edifice of what a high-end law firm is and or was away, and you're just left with a human part of the equation. That's something to really to really lean into. And, and maybe, maybe this is a, a great opportunity to pivot to, you know, navigating this this virtual world. So you've you've got this this business that was predicated on the idea of getting people in the the same physical space. Uh, that that for the foreseeable future, that's not going to be feasible. Um, before we we started recording Matt, you described your your lemonade stand that that you're you're broadcasting from here. Uh, you've got this concept of practically in-person meetings. Can can you describe to us how you're navigating this this crisis from a from a technology standpoint, and what kind of response you're seeing from your clients in terms of what this new format looks like?
1: Yeah, I'll I'll start with the response first because I think these last three weeks, in particular the two before this one, uh, people were fingers crossed and in denial that things were going to have to change longer term than maybe a couple more weeks. So. We weren't seeing a lot of people super engaged around right. doing meetings virtually around strategy because it's just a blip. And now that we know it's not, and that it's likely to to blip again three or four months from now, people are all of a, all of a sudden realizing that their binder of strategy that they had and paid a million dollars for is best <laughs> sitting in the trash can, right? Yeah. So, yeah. What we've, what, what we started to realize, and we had a, we had a little bit of an advance warning because we Washington university here in St. Louis is a customer of ours. And we had their environmental health and safety group here doing a retreat. And they're the people who make sure that all the germs are off every surface in the hospitals and their labs. And like, these are infectious disease people. They are among the smartest in the world at this. And about five weeks ago, it was pretty clear that there was no way it wasn't coming here six weeks ago, whenever, that whole, whenever the, the early warning sign started. And so we really thought we need to have some way to deliver meetings virtually because if we don't deliver them virtually, we're not delivering anything. And so we've done a couple things. One is uh, the virtual meeting studio. I joke about it as our lemonade stand because life gave all of us a bit of a big basket of lemons uh, over the last month and change. is that I'm sitting here, I've got a snowball mic in front of me, right? Just a little USB mic. Uh, I have an owl camera, so I'm using an owl pro, which is why you see this weird band on top of my video. So that's a 360 of the space we're in. Uh, I have on my left, a Google Jamboard, uh, which is a, a, a whiteboarding virtual tool that's really slick. I have two big Uh, 65-inch camera or televisions that are behind me or kind of in front of me behind you uh, that allow me to see uh, if we're working on a virtual whiteboard, if we're using a tool, and I'll talk about the toolkit we've been using next. And so and it's a way to facilitate and kind of still give what feels to our customers, either the experience of me facilitating or me doing an evening at the improv. I need a little neon sign behind me.
0: Yes, yeah.
1: But it does feel a bit like it's a, got a comedy stage as well. Um,
0: yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, you're 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 very much in this in in a what feels like a creative environment, the kind of place that you've you've got just unlimited potential. You f- you feel creative just looking right? at the space you're in,
1: trying to be. And then for us, what we've tried to learn is that from a tool standpoint, there are a mix of constraints, and it depends upon the amount of time you're going to be working with the people you're working with. So. If we knew that we had a team launching multiple meetings, and I'll talk about timing of of online versus in-person in a second, we would spend a significant amount of time with them early learning to use some tools that would allow us to get the most value from them. If someone's joining us for an hour or two-hour session, we dumb it down quite a bit because it's not worth the, uh, oh my goodness, what am I doing now with an unfamiliar tool? But the toolkit that we keep on playing with new versions, but a handful of things that are crucial for us so far is that we're using Mural, although the, another tool called Miro, M-I-R-O, is very similar. It's a fe- effectively a large whiteboarding tool. Uh, you can draw on it. You can do post-it notes. You can put templates on it. Uh, business model canvas, those sorts of things are even built in. Okay. Uh, and it's pretty slick. Uh, I, I haven't heard of that tool. It sounds really cool. It, it, it requires some... Management of how to use it best because you get people looking in for the first time and all of a sudden this carefully curated whiteboard space It's like having 50 people in a room jump up at the at once with all different size white post-it notes and just Plaster them anywhere they want and move the board from different sides of the room to the other so There's some tools you need to use to be better at it. The second thing uh, And this is really simple, but we've been using Google slides So we Mm -hmm. can put one of our worksheets underneath the Google slide as a template and then just build text boxes so people can collaborate on those in real time. And depending upon how private or confidential the work is, we may give them the links, uh, but we can also share public links that we just keep public for a very short amount of time for people to engage with it collectively, collaborate through it, and then we'll lock it down. We can export it. We'll put it on the mural, which is kind of our effectively our big workspace. One other thing that we've been using... Uh, That is still where We're settling in finally now is you need both a real-time Video place right zoom, which is where we are now you need a real-time collaboration space, which is for us mural and Google Mm -hmm. Uh, But then the last one is you need an asynchronous collaboration space for the work to continue to happen in between Uh, And we've really started to lean into notion uh, Mm -hmm. as a tool uh, that allows us to build pretty uh, complex and elaborate wiki style pages that allow collaboration, voting, uh, embedding other documents and other types of services in those. So that's our shared workspace in between. And that really, if I can, has been the biggest lesson we've learned is that we saw people at the very beginning of this lockdown try to replicate their in-person meetings online, right? We have eight hours scheduled, still on our calendars. Let's do eight hours. Yeah. And eight hours online, as we all know by now, is exhausting and ineffective because it's eight hours at home with all the distractions that are there versus eight hours in person with at least a semblance of control you can exert on the room. And so we're really starting to find that that eight hours worth of session is probably replicated in three to five 90-minute sessions with lots of work in between. And so you can space it out over time. It gives people a chance to even be more considerate and thoughtful we always wanted to embrace in the room only things you can do in person, right? That was Filament's kind of core uh, touch point. We didn't let people come in virtually because a virtual attendee in an in-person room shrinks the fidelity of the experience for the people in the room yeah. to what could be consumed online. But if everyone's online, now all of a sudden you've got a completely different, interesting challenge to solve. What are yeah. the things we can only do online? Right. How do we engage in different ways? How do we make, how do we give power to the room in different ways? How do we let people work in between? How do we let them use the tools that they're most familiar with in between? What it means for us is that eight hour day for us in the past was set it and forget it, right? You're still facilitating and doing the work, but the model, the framework, the tools are pretty much baked before the day begins. The moment you start doing multiple sessions of 60 or 90 minutes spread out over even weeks of time, there's way more work in between. Frame things, do research if necessary, and then the next 90 minutes is again a super powerful dose of whatever you're trying to deliver. Versus something that may have been watered down because the day has changed in focus from right. the beginning to the
0: end. Your your comment around this concept of everyone being virtual versus just one or two people has has also been one of my big epiphanies over the course of this crisis as well. I I always found. Meetings to be so much less effective when you had people dialed in remotely, and it's one of the reasons I've I've focused on on building offices for for Clio is as soon as we get a center of gravity of people in a given region, create an office so there's that gathering space, and you know I I, I felt that the best work often got done, you know when people are in the same room, and that still may be true, but what's what's been super interesting for me in this in this crisis is if everyone is remote versus, you know, 10 people in a room and two people dialed in, for example, if everyone is remote, that levels the playing field in such a powerful way that you don't feel like as the virtual attendee, for example, the person almost straining to lean into the room through your, through your screen and whatever telepresence you have in that room and dealing with the crappy audio and all the other struggles of, of, of a virtual meeting. When, when everybody. Number one is virtual, and number two is made the investment in good audio and good video and all the things that facilitate a great meeting. It's actually really powerful what you can do online. And like you said, it demands a different kind of energy and a different kind of focus. But uh, for, for me, that's, that's been hugely eye-opening. And I, I think for the legal professionals listening, thinking about how you adapt to a purely virtual world and the kind of opportunities that opens up. Uh, is that is actually pretty exciting?
1: Yeah, I I think that's a great point. One of the things that I always believed, and it was it was a fault of mine when I was practicing. Uh, I think the statute of limitations has passed on this. Uh, <laughs> is that I always used the in person meeting. Uh, it, it was a procrastinator's best friend, right? Because right. I could say, Hey, can you come in next week? Now I had a week to do whatever I could have been talking with them over the phone right. or virtually about right? But the other thing is that, and this is where the next phase of this virtual collaboration is going to take us, is that we start to realize how little of this needs to be even in person in this way, right? Right now we're trying to replicate, we've got a meeting, we would have been in person, so now we're going to do this. And the truth is that we don't need that for every meeting, right? I always think about the meeting math in that if I have a 10-person meeting uh, and I'm leading to nine other people, that's 10 hours of our time. That's a full-time day. Yeah. And, and so am I better off, number one, if that is to report to me? I'm better off doing that hour with everyone individually or the six minutes with everyone individually, right, uh, versus them taking a six-minute turn, six-minute turn, six-minute turn. Now I've, I've lessened the load on our organization by almost eight hours of time. Yeah. Right, when you start to do the math. But the second thing is there are people who can be more thoughtful and considerate when they have time to process, right? So imagine that hour-long meeting instead is, uh, I'm Matt Homan. Uh, We're here today. For the next five minutes, I want to set up the problem we're going to be thinking about. right. Any questions? Let's make sure we frame it the right way. Okay. Here it is. Uh, We'll be back in three hours to talk about it, right? In the meantime, I want a paragraph from each of you. I want bullet points. I want virtual post-it notes, whatever those things are necessary for us to be that collaboration. And now we talk about it again. But when we come back, I would go, uh, Jack, it's your turn. Give me, you've got a minute, share your idea. Everyone else, I'm muting, right? This isn't yeah. coming over the top of Jack. This isn't sharing. It's you sharing yours. Stop. Next person, stop. And then what I would consider doing is if we're in Zoom, I'd now put people in a small group breakouts and say, talk about it Talk about it for the next 30 minutes or find 30 minutes with the three of you over the next day, and then come back again. And so now what you've done is you've given people a chance to ruminate and think about something. You probably get way better ideas. You've empowered introverts in ways that they aren't always empowered, even in these virtual ways. And you're going to walk out with, as a leader even, the capacity to synthesize and maybe even make decisions collectively versus taking things under advisement because in real time you don't want to commit to something because you've got to talk to a partner or an investor or your CFO or whomever who just doesn't happen to be in the room. And so that's where I'm excited about our opportunity is that we think differently about meetings, we always have. How can you take some of these really cool collaboration tools and build this mix of in-person, virtually, and asynchronous communication and problem solving to get to better results faster, with less of a load on people's individual person time.
0: I think that's such a powerful insight. Just how how we can and I love the idea, and I hadn't really considered it carefully myself. Is how can we combine this idea of of synchronous meetings where we're exchanging ideas in real time with with asynchronous complements almost where where people can do the deeper thinking. As you point out, people process information in so many different ways and, and we can create a meeting environment that actually helps those people be more creative and and, and more impactful in their, uh, in their meetings. Um, Matt, our our time has flown by and I've, I've, I've loved our conversation. We could, we could talk for, for hours as, as we, we have in the past, but uh, I want to try to at least put a bookmark in this conversation. We can come back for a, a part two. There's so much more I'd like to explore with you. But let me conclude with two final questions. Uh, number one, uh, one very interesting chapter of your career that you have left out uh, was this, uh, this stint as the CEO of what was called the Invisible Girlfriend and Invisible Boyfriend. Uh, and I remember cluing into these when I saw you quoted in the New York Times, I believe, in a piece about the, the concept of the invisible boyfriend, and I think the, the New York Times reporter had actually signed up for your service. Uh, you were featured on the Today Show, and I, I just can't in good conscience let you leave the show without at least talking to us a little bit about this very interesting chapter of your career.
1: <laughs> so they're still around. Invisible Boyfriend and Girlfriend were services that helped you to tell a better story about a relationship you're not actually in. So, you could sign up, build a relationship story of this person that you created because you got tired of mom and dad uh, giving you pressure to be in a relationship. A soldier overseas without a girl back home uh, just wanted to have someone to talk to, right? So, you got text messages and near real time voicemails, uh, handwritten notes from this creature of your, uh, your invention. What was fascinating about it, and probably the biggest lesson I've learned about Invisible Girlfriend and Boyfriend, is we had unbelievable press. The Today Show was three days after we launched right? Uh, it was one of those kind of just bizarre fantasy worlds. And the challenge we had is that I was in, I had just signed the lease for Filament. So when all of this happened, I had a choice to make. I could follow a business that I was passionate about that I thought helped people and had impact globally. Like meetings are terrible everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. And it was something that I had a weird, unique skill set and knack for, And the Invisible Girlfriend and Boyfriend sprung out of a startup weekend. It was a domain I'd bought seven years earlier. It could not have been more random as a thing. And I realized that I just didn't have the passion for it. We had another CEO. It's now back in my hands. He got a job, had kids. And we also were in a city that did not have a particularly strong startup scene in people with experience in social. A lot of B2B insight and advisors here in St. Louis, but we didn't have, at least then, a ton of really good advice and we didn't have Mm -hmm. access to easy money here. Mm -hmm. So it's languished. Uh, Number one, it's a bit of a regret, but number two, it's still a great story I get to tell. It's best told with a drink in my hand uh, because no one believes it when they hear it for the first time. But as I reflect on it, it really is a signal for me that this is my passion. Uh, And helping lawyers, it's not a big part of our business, but I keep, in some ways, I joke about the Michael Corleone and the third godfather, like just when he gets out, he keeps, they keep pulling him back in. But so much of why I like to work with lawyers and firms is that you've got compassionate people who oftentimes are doing this work because they care deeply about the outcomes. And uh, I, the outcome for me in Filament was where my heart was. And uh, that's why I'm here in this space versus on a beach in Maui uh, with a billion dollars in my bank account uh, because we <laughs> sold it to Facebook at the peak. Of startup craziness,
0: I, I just want to highlight uh, again just how big and viral this thing was when uh, when you launched it, Matt. It just seemed like it was was everywhere. It must have been a surreal moment, but I, I think you, you you made the right choice in terms of pursuing your passion long term. Uh, Matt, my final question for you uh, is: There a parting thought, uh, a main message you'd like to leave with our listeners? Uh, speaking them either as as legal professionals or or human beings, uh, as it relates to how they navigate this this crisis.
1: I, I think I think it's the it's, it's a mix of both of those things. I, I was trying to think about what that what that challenges. Is. This is the first time for many lawyers that the challenges you're facing are exactly the same as the challenges your clients are facing, right? If you're a divorce lawyer uh, and you're happily married or haven't been divorced for ten years, you're not in the same spot that they are. It's hard if you're a bankruptcy lawyer, hopefully you're not also going through bankruptcy yourself, right? This is that one time where literally everyone is trying to navigate the same challenges in unfamiliar ways in the exact same point in time. And if you're not using an opportunity to reach out and not only help your clients in this time we're in, but learn from them, you've missed a huge opportunity because they're figuring out, in some cases better and faster than you are how to do these things. And so this is that time where you now realize that you're literally all in it together with your clients and uh, don't, let that, don't let this crisis go to waste if you have an opportunity to engage with them in that way. And you both come out at the end of it, uh, potentially improved by learning from one another.
0: Yeah, I couldn't uh, agree with that sentiment more. Well, Matt, thanks so much for joining us. It's been an incredible conversation. really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you, Jack. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters today, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider, for supporting this podcast. If you'd like to learn more about Clio, please visit clio.com.